dive into uh, today's lesson. And we're going to be talking about the cross today. Uh, we used to do a Good Friday service. Um, but if you saw the announcements that we just had, you try to add a Good Friday service to the Easter egg hunt and then four weekend services, it, we were just, it was, it was more than we could handle. And so we had to kind of choose where to put our energy. And so now what I do is I talk about the cross the Sunday before uh, Easter. And the cross is one of those things, um, it's hard to talk about sometimes, right? Um, you think about the cross, uh, growing up, I thought of it as an incredibly depressing subject. But really, it's, it's kind of based on perspectives. Any, any event is really based on your perspective, right? Um, for instance, if we were to get a foot of snow, say December 21st, nobody would care. People would be excited, right? People would be like, oh, it's snow. It's awesome. We're going to have, I'm going to be able to use my cross country skis. I'm going to, you know, you, but you dump a foot of snow on March 19th, and it's a whole different reaction, right? There are still a few of you out there that are like, it's snow, it's snow. But if you're smart, you're keeping quiet about it, right? Because everybody else is losing their minds, right? It's like, it's snow. Same exact event, depending on your perspective, depending on when it happens, depending on a lot of different factors, impacts us a whole lot of different ways. Same thing with the cross. Um, the Apostle Paul, every time that he would mention the cross in one of his letters, it's not like he would all of a sudden get real depressing and, and, and sad. And it's like he would have to stop and, and spend a couple of lines just talking, sometimes paragraphs, sometimes entire chapters, talking about this amazing thing that Jesus did for you and for me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But for we who are being saved, we know it is the very power of God. Just about every book that Paul writes, he mentions the cross and stops and goes on and on and on about it. It's like the concept or the term Good Friday. I don't know if uh, you ever stopped to think about this, but it's like, it's the day Jesus died, we call it Good Friday. Why does that make sense? Um, it's BC cartoon. I don't know if you ever read BC, but uh, this one in particular one I really liked. Uh, the guy says, I, I hate the term Good Friday. And his friend says, why? Go ahead and click forward. He says, because my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. Now, his buddy says, well, if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? He says, good. Have a nice day, right? It's all about perspective. It's all about how you're looking at this thing. And so I want to spend today kind of looking at um, a couple of different questions when it comes to the cross. Number one, why did Jesus have to die? Number two, why did his death mean that I could have life? Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about what actually happened to him on the cross and uh, then finish that all up, uh, kind of coming out of that whole thing, uh, hopefully with, with joy and uh, gratitude as we head towards the resurrection. Uh, all of that in about 22 minutes. We'll see. So uh, the first point uh, when it comes to this concept of why did Jesus have to die is that there's this problem, okay? And the problem is sin. Now, sin is not a word that we like to talk about very much anymore. We don't like to accept responsibility for anything that we've done. But 
this concept of sin is an important one to understand if we're going to understand the cross. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, All have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard, and all need to be made right with God. Now, I don't know about you, I get vaguely uncomfortable with how often the word all is used in that sentence or in those two sentences. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I know that when I see the word all, that means I'm included in that, right? And so are you. And so the question then is, okay, so then what is sin, right? If all of us have done it, then what is it? Let's watch this and then we'll talk about that. Well, we should go, Mr. Ventura. I've arranged to play. I'll meet you at the bottom. There's still one more thing I must do before I go. Some of you are thinking the fact that I showed you that video clip is a sin in and of itself, right? You're like, hmm, that pastor Ed, Ace Ventura, I can't believe it, you know? But um, that statement that he makes there at the end, let's do all the things that you want to do, right? That, that is, well, that's the picture of God's glorious standard, right? Looking to heaven and saying, I want to do all the things that you want to do with less sarcasm than maybe Ace puts in his, uh, in his statement, but that when we don't do what God asks us to do, when we do what God asks us not to do, that's what the Bible labels sin. Now, it's one of those things where sin is when I decide that I know better than God how to live my life. And really, it's in-game. The in-game of sin is me saying to God, leave me alone, right? Now, most of us, especially those of us in this room, we would never say to God, leave me completely alone, right? We still want his power in our lives. We still want his blessings. We pray for his intervention in certain areas of our lives. But then we have these areas where we're like, you know, but, but, but in this area, leave me alone. I'm, I'm going to handle this area. Everything else, I'll let you be involved in, but this area right here, I want you to leave me alone. Well, that never works. And ultimately, it leads to something much more destructive, uh, to the final inevitable end of actually saying to God, leave me alone, and him finally doing that. And that leads us to our second point for today. The, the, if the, pro the first problem is that there's this, this concept of sin, the bigger problem is the penalty for sin. In uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says again, the wages of sin is death. Now, that concept of death is an, also an important one to understand if we're going to understand the cross. 
And so in order to understand the biblical concept of death, because it's not always like, you know, your heart stopped beating, you stopped breathing, and you fell over dead. It's much worse than that. This biblical concept of spiritual death is like the complete reversal of life. Not just physical, but all spiritual, psychological, emotional, all life is gone. If you go back to the very beginning, before God created everything, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Basically, this is before he creates, right? Before he, he fills the emptiness with life. Before he shapes and forms the earth. Before he fills the heavens with light. Before all of that, it was, it was chaos, it was formless, it was dark, it was empty. That's the, the opposite of life, right? Chaos, darkness, formlessness, emptiness. Then God speaks into this chaos. And everything that you see around you is created, right? And when he's all done, after day six, the Bible says he looks down at all that he has made, and he saw that it was very good. But it doesn't take long for that to change. Because the people that he puts down here, who he has given the opportunity to, to choose whether or not they're going to do all the things that he wants to do, right? He gives us the ability to say, no, nah, I think I know better than you what's going to make me happy. They go ahead and they go off on their own, right? They decide to eat the fruit that was forbidden. And they, well, death enters into the world for the first time. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. <coughs> And so death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. There it is again, right? Paul makes sure that we never forget this, right? Now, if you're just, if all you know about the book of Romans are these couple of verses that I've pulled out and kind of shown you right here, right now, you'd think, gosh, what a depressing book. <laughs> I'll tell you this much. If you had been reading from chapter 1 and had been going through and you were to chapter 5, verse 12 right now, you would already know there was a plan in motion that's going to fix all of this stuff, okay? You would have already heard about the cross, you would have already heard about, so it's like, don't get too depressed, there's a solution, we're gonna to get to that, all right? But first we've gotta go through this part. Death, when it enters into the world, it enters into the world not like completely reversing everything like immediately, going from form to formless, going from life to death, going from light to dark. It doesn't happen immediately. It happens slowly and gradually, but inevitably. If you're a science geek, then you might remember uh, from your physics class the second law of thermodynamics, which is, it, I mean, it's, it's more than this, but basically it's entropy, right? And entropy is the tendency of things to go from order to disorder. In other words, things fall apart, right? I had a, my very first car was a 63 Chevy 2 station wagon. I named him Wilbur, and it looked like a Wilbur, man. It was like the definition of entropy. Things would fall off as I was driving down the road. It had rust holes in the floorboards. I could see the road going by underneath me as I drove down the California freeways, you know. Cars fall apart. Our clothes wear out. Our homes, our, these buildings, they, they are falling apart. The older I get, the more I understand entropy when it comes to the human body, right? Our bodies are wearing out. 
You may not have noticed it too much yet, but believe me, you know what? It's like, I'll never forget Judy's grandpa, Grandpa Dick. Many of you remember him. I remember he was like 96 and he was doing something. He kind of goes, oh, he goes, I'm not 80 anymore. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. You know, it kind of made me feel bad about complaining about being 50, you know? So, um, entropy didn't exist on this earth until Adam sinned. And then it entered the world. That, that, that is what... That is what the, the biblical concept of death is. It is this inevitable slow march towards the complete reversal of everything that God did in Genesis chapter 1. But it doesn't all happen at once. That's why entropy is a slow process. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, the Bible says that through Jesus he created the universe, and the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything. Colossians chapter 1 says that he holds everything together. And so because of that, it's like Jesus is, is, is pushing back the dark, right? He's pushing back the death. He's, he's holding back the entropy. But the day is coming, the Bible says, when that inevitable process will reach its logical end. And the Bible calls that judgment day. The prophet Joel calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jeremiah, when he... When he, when he he, he saw it and he wrote about it. It's like he, he saw it in the future and this is what he wrote about it. He said, I looked at the earth and it was empty and had no shape. I looked at the sky, its light was gone. It's like basically it is the opposite of Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, the earth has no shape and then God shapes it. It has no life, it's empty and God fills it. The, the, the heavens are, are dark and he fills them with light. And Jeremiah sees a day coming when all of that is reversed. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, what does all of this have to do with the cross? Well, in order to understand the cross, we've got to understand death. This is, this is sort of the biblical definition of death, this inevitable march towards uncreation, I guess you could say. Um, and we'll get to why that's important here in just a minute as we talk about Jesus on the cross. But first, I want to just kind of, I want to share with you something else that, that, that is important to me. And that is, growing up, when people would say things like, you know, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, I'd say, why? Right? My Sunday school teachers either loved me or they couldn't, well, I wouldn't say they couldn't stand me because we were in church. So I will just say I was not their favorite necessarily. I was, I was a thorn in their side maybe sometimes because I, that's, why? Why is that that way? Why is it this way? Why is that going on? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus' death mean that I get to live? You know, all these questions, which... Now I can feel their pain because it's like it's really hard to answer those questions. The Bible gets really vague about a lot of these spiritual things. Maybe because, I heard one preacher say one time, it's because um, if God had written down exactly what was going on, exactly what would happen in response to, to Jesus' death, then the enemy would have known what was going on and would have never, would have never prompted people to push them towards, towards killing Jesus, towards putting him on the cross. You know, the devil thinks he's winning when Jesus is hanging on the cross. When he dies, he's, he thinks he's won. Turns out he was completely wrong. Why? Why is that? The Bible isn't real clear about that. A lot of times you've got to look at as much at what the Bible doesn't say as much as what it does. And nobody did that better, I think, than C.S. Lewis. 
C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and one of them, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the second one, probably the most popular one, is an allegory of why all of this worked, how things were, why, why, why Aslan, who represents Jesus, why he had to die, why his death re resulted in the downfall of the White Witch, which represents Satan, the enemy. And, you know, it's like, I spent a lot of time reading through that, thinking about it. There's another book, if you're interested in this, it's uh, by Calvin Miller. It's called The Singer. It's another uh, allegory about, uh, about why all of this happened, what was going on, what was, what was happening behind the scenes. And basically, the idea is that when God created the universe, that he wove these universal laws or principles into the very fabric of everything we see around us, right? It, it, it's just a part of reality. You know, and, and you can see these physical laws, right? Like gravity. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, and then when God created the earth, he also created gravity. And gravity works like this. You know, it doesn't say anything about gravity in the Bible, but you don't have to be Sir Isaac Newton to know that what goes up must come down, right? You don't have to have, be a, a, a physicist to realize that if you fall off of a ladder, you're going to get hurt. And the higher up you are, the more, the more it's going to hurt when you fall and you hit the ground. Right? It is one of those universal principles, one of those universal laws that is woven into the fabric of this universe. Spiritual laws, which were also woven into the fabric of this universe when God created it, are every bit as real as those physical laws are. And while God doesn't necessarily explain all of them, they are every bit as real and every bit as... Uh, they, they have every bit as much impact on our lives and, and, and this universe as those physical laws do. And one of those spiritual laws is that the wages of sin is death. Like I said, I used to say, well, why? why? If Jesus is, if God created, why couldn't he have said, oh, you know what? The wages of sin is ice cream. You know, go ahead and eat ice cream. Oh, you, you sinned. Here's another bowl of ice cream. You know, why, why, if God was, was making everything up, why couldn't God just decide that it was going to be something different? And again, there's not a lot of direction in the Bible here. But I will say this. There are certain things even God can't do. Okay? The Bible says God cannot lie. And God cannot force you to do something that you do not on your own choose to do. I mean, he probably could, right? I mean, he, of course he could, but he doesn't, right? And so he doesn't do that. Another thing the Bible says God cannot do is he cannot deny himself. He has this eternal nature that he cannot exist in relationship with sin. He cannot exist in relationship with open rebellion. And so what God had to do is he had to find a way to get around the concept of the wages of sin is death and to be able to bring us back to him to help us cross this chasm that we've dug with our own hands, right? That's between us and him to find a way to bridge that chasm to bring us back to him without denying his, his own eternal nature. And that's what happens with the cross. You have the Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Another one of those eternal principles is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, C.S. Lewis calls this the deep magic. And there's this moment in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan has sacrificed himself for the traitor Edmund. Edmund has betrayed his, his family, his friends, and Aslan. And because of that, the white witch comes and says, the deep magic says he belongs to me now. I, I can kill him now. The wages of sin is death, right? 
And Aslan says, yes, that's true. He belongs to you, but I will trade my life for his. And she's like, is this a trick? And he says, so they, they make the trade, and after hours of torture, humiliation, she kills him. And there's this moment the next day, as Aslan's two of his friends, disciples, whatever you want to call them, come to see his, his dead body laying on the stone table. Well, let's watch and then we'll talk about it. And when he says, plug your ears at the end of the clip, trust him, okay? Plug your ears. victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead. The stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Evan will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go, and little time to get there. Now the sound guy actually did a really good job that time. I didn't warn him last night, and I watched the people out there, and when he goes, rawr, it's like with, with the levels of the same, people are like, oh, you know. So anyway, you're welcome, yes. Um, so there's this problem, which is sin. There's a bigger problem, which is the penalty for sin, which is death. But then there's this third point to this whole lesson, I guess, the last one, and that is the solution, which is Jesus and the cross. Romans 6.23 that I read you earlier, uh, it starts out really kind of depressing. It says, for the wages of sin is death, right? But it goes on. That's not the end of even that one sentence. Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so you, there's always something that, 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 that Paul is saying, yes, this seems very depressing, but let me, let, me, 
Let me finish up the part that seems kind of dark with something that will give you great joy. Paul never talks about the cross without remembering the resurrection, without saying, yeah, that was a terrible event, but it did so much for us. There are these scriptures sprinkled throughout the New Testament uh, that talk about the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says, He canceled the debt which listed all the rules that we failed to follow. He took away that record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. God stripped the spiritual rulers and powers of their authority, and with the cross he won the victory and showed the world that they were powerless. But he, in order for him to accomplish this, he had to... Remember I said that God had to figure out a way to circumvent uh, the fact that we sin, and he had to find a way to bring us back to himself that didn't sort of violate the law? Well, in the clip we just watched... He hints at that, that if Jesus dies for us, if Jesus goes through what we were supposed to go through, well, then somehow that allows him to redeem us, to bring us along so that we never have to go through that death, that spiritual death, that uncreation, that, that sin and death inevitably takes us towards. And that's what happens to him on the cross. I used to think when Jesus on the night before he was killed, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is sweating drops like blood, and he is praying, he prays three times and asks God if there's any other way. Let's see if we can find any other way. And there isn't any other way. He knows it, God knows it, but he can't help himself but pray for it. And I used to think that he was worried about the physical torture, right? About the beatings, about the whip and the nails and the crown of thorns and the spear, that that's what he was stressing out about. But if you read the story, he never opens his mouth about any of those things. He goes through those things without a word. But then, when God turns away, when he experiences that moment of uncreation, he's undone. Mark chapter... 15, verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this one moment, God, Jesus experiences something he's never experienced before, the logical end game of sin and death, complete separation from the Creator. As he hangs on that cross, the creator is uncreated. The one who holds everything together is unraveling. And he can't stand it. It is, it is, Max Lucado does a great job of talking about it in his book, Six Hours, One Friday. I, we were watching a video on uh, Wednesday at our Bible study, and the guy said, in six hours, Jesus spent eternity in hell. And there's another one of the BC comics. We don't have it here to show you, but it's, it's this, the woman in BC is sitting there reading the Bible and the guy comes up and says, what are you reading? He goes, I'm reading about the time Jesus went to hell. She says, Jesus went to hell? And he says, yeah, but don't worry about it. He didn't stay. He just stopped in to cancel our reservations. And I like that, right? That is a neat way to look at it. And every time that we, that when we think about the cross, if we would remember that, that he went through that for us, then that changes that cross from the 
from a dark, depressing symbol into a symbol of life and hope that now people wear around their necks. They will get them tattooed on their shoulders, on their bodies. They, you see them everywhere. They are a symbol of hope. A, a symbol. It was, a, it was a, an instrument of execution and torture. And now it's, it's completely changed because that's what Jesus can do. He, he takes things that are ugly and messy and messed up and he turns them into something beautiful. Last part of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15, verse 37 says, Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he explained, this man truly was the Son of God. The temple curtain that separated the throne room of God from everything else, it tore from the top to the bottom. Why does Mark make sure that he says it went from top to bottom? I think because he wants to make sure we know who tore it, right? This wasn't man breaking into the throne room of God. This was God breaking out into the world and making sure that all anybody who wants access to him has to do from now on is just walk into that throne room, bow your head, and speak to the creator. And it's almost like Mark wants to make sure that we understand, and so he shares with us the first guy that does that, this Roman centurion. It's almost like he's setting it up to say, Look, everybody's welcome. Even the guy that was responsible for Jesus' death is welcome in the throne room of God now. And all of that happens so that this one sentence could be written. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says, So, now those who are in Christ are not judged guilty. Those are some of the most beautiful words you will ever read. All of this courtesy of the cross. Next week, we will talk about the resurrection. That will be a lot more fun, believe me. But for this week, spend some time thinking about what Jesus did for you and what that cross meant, means, meant and means in your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for going through everything that you went through for us, experiencing what we deserve to experience so that we wouldn't have to, so that now anybody who is in you is judged not guilty. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.